All right, well, we'll get started. <clears throat> um, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for this, the Lord's Day. Pray, Lord, that you would uh, already be, through God the Holy Spirit, drawing our hearts and minds uh, towards public worship, gathering on, on this day to celebrate the resurrection of our Redeemer, our Lord, Jesus Christ. And as we now gather before that time, a time of uh, instruction and conversation, pray that ultimately we would be centered around the reality that, that our, our whole being and meaning of here is to glorify your name. And Lord, so be with us now during this time, as well as the students, as well as the children, as we enter in this time of, of instruction, uh, Lord, may you be blessed at this time. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, so we're, we're still talking about, um, in essence, the creation of humankind. So, so last week, I covered a lot of image of God, uh, which Fred had also kind of covered, so there was a bit of overlap. Uh, the, the phrase that was used was, was the gift of mankind, as well as coming on the back of the gift of the cosmos, or the creation, man as, as mankind, as, as the God's vice regent, or regent under God's authority, to cultivate and subdue all of the earth. Now, the, the, the area where I'm, we're working it is, is still pre-fall. Now, the fall will get mentioned on and off as it was last week. And so as we now are diving into Genesis chapter 2 and the account of the creation of man and woman, and then kind of laying that out, the understanding that, I guess a couple of things I want you to think about. Number one, if you're looking at pre-fall humanity, and you're looking particularly in the garden, and you're looking at the mandate or the, 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 the cultural mandate that was, was given to be fruitful and multiply. And it was given to this man and this, what we'll read about, and this woman as they would be vice regents uh, fulfilling that role together, that they were going to be fruitful, multiply in their sinlessness, in their holiness, centered in the garden, and then the idea being that that is globalized. And so this is a, this is a humanity at its best, or as it should have been. And then so everything that, that you look forward to, that we, we, the gospel is preached about after the fall, it is predominantly focused on Christ recapturing that, God bringing that to reality. And so when you talk about new heavens, new earth, new creation, new Jerusalem, that's all bringing this back, this pre-fall glory back to that point in an even a greater way. And so one of the things that, or several things that I'm not going to talk about, and we have talked about in other areas, when we're talking about men and women, I'm not talking about women's roles in the church, in society, I'm fine with that discussion. But that's not the discussion I'm having this morning. 
And we're also not talking about primarily any of the kind of modern kind of clashing that goes on centered around those things. I will be talking about responsibilities. I will be talking about things that are clear from the text in this pre-fall era of, of humanity. Um, but I think all of that other stuff that takes up so much headspace can become noise if you're not paying attention to the reality of the glory of humanity that is laid out in these chapters that will be realized. And so it's that glory of humanity as vice regents of the Most High God that Christ, in, in part, not in, in everything, but in part is, is fulfilling and will be fulfilled at the consummation. And if you lose sight of that, And every time you come to these verses, all you want to talk about is women should be subordinate or men and women are completely equal in all areas. And that becomes your only thing. That is missing the forest for the trees. And that is my opinion. And it's it's true. So. (laughs) So. Is there any new people here? Because that's okay. So most people know, like, all right. So again, when we're looking at these two accounts, we looked at at really chapter one, twenty six, twenty seven last week, and so we're going to delve into chapter two because while we we talked about Adam um, being uh, the main phrase for all of humanity, it's used five hundred Fifty-four times, I think that's right, uh, in the Old Testament to describe mankind in general. But Adam is also used as a proper name for Adam. And so Adam's name is the same word that's used for mankind. And so that's also where you get the very clear theological truth that he is the representation of all those who will come after him. Just as, as Eve... And when Adam later will give her the name Eve, as we'll we'll talk about post-fall, it's the idea of mother of all. And so this is a reality of that representation, the headship of humanity, and what flows after the fall, particularly in the way of the curse, is is important. (coughs) So as we talked about Adam last week, we didn't talk about Eve. We talked about this kind of singular event. Something to think about, perhaps, is, is prior to the fall, what, what two uh, social events probably isn't the right way to describe them, but, but per, perhaps it is. So, so what two social things that humans take part of happened before the fall? Wedding. Good. Covenant of marriage, and there's one other. Keep this day the Sabbath. So Sabbath rest and the covenant of marriage are two things that are given humanity prior to the fall. That that should clue you in at the very least on the importance of the aspect of humanity um, reflecting, as we talked about last week, or mirroring God's glory in keeping the Sabbath rest and the covenant of marriage. Those two things seem of the utmost import 
in this time prior to the fall. Any, any thoughts on that? Or am I, just make, am I just making stuff up? Or Let's go with Sabbath. Is there a Sabbath rest still today? We have some uncomfortable nods. Nod circles. Now people are like, you know, I'm stretching out my shoulders. I don't know what he's doing. Okay, good. We have a yes. Anyone else? Okay, they're supposed to be. I'm going to take that as another yes. Three yeses. It's not as prominent as it was 40, 50 years ago. But is that a yes or a no? You're observing that it's not as important no. society? I'm talking about in society. You're right. Sabbath rest is not as prominent as it was. Okay. Yeah, Melissa. Okay. Okay. Well. Mm-hmm. Sure. Sure. Christ has fulfilled that Sabbath. Prior, yeah. The church being the bride of Christ. I would, I would say that they're not still, at least they're, they're, they've changed a whole lot in what we're doing. Okay. In practice of Scripture. Okay. So, interesting though that those two things uh, that Sharon Stephen hinted at pre fall, the Sabbath and marriage are the two things that Christ. The imagery that's used in the language of the New Testament. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's our Sabbath rest. Uh, describes marriage uh, in, in a way to denote the, the bride, the church, will be made pure when, when the husband or the groom returns. And all that imagery is, is hearkening back with purpose to creation, to this account. Now, while I agree with both of you theologically, is there still practice in, in, in today for the church? Practice in Sabbath rest? Practice in holy matrimony that are supposed to show the world the difference of the church and what we believe and the glory of God reflected in that? We asked him, is it beneficial or is it commanded? Well, I, I asked very vaguely on purpose, and so. Because <laughs> you wanted me to clarify, right? No, no, I want to hear some answers, so.
Okay. I, I was raised very much as a, a more strict Sabbatarian um, where, you know, we were very limited on what we were allowed to do on Sundays, and uh, that was, you know, still pretty much how my parents observed the Sabbath in our, in our home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you guys all know I miss every other week because I, I work, not because I'm a mess. <laughs> I miss every other week because I work. Sure. And, you know, so, so but um, on, on the days that I'm not working to preserve life on a Sunday, um, I do find that there is a lot of spiritual benefit in, uh, in observing the Sabbath as a day of, of worship and of rest. But I also think that argument that it's been fulfilled in the rest in Christ which we are supposed to partake of continually um, and the absence of a clear repeat of that command in the way that we see a clear repeat of the mandates regarding marriage uh, prevent me from taking a hard stance where I would say that other Christians are sinning by not observing the Sabbath the way that I am. Okay. Sam? But the restaurant workers were working. Yeah. 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 So yeah, I, I I was bringing that up just as as yeah the I would I would generally agree with kind of the broad sentiment like that that the Sunday was originally and and throughout history has been considered the Christian Sabbath. And so with recognition of all the fulfillment of Christ, um, the, the impossible structures that were put on, on Jews and say, first century Christianity is, is next week we start getting back into Matthew again. Like most of Jesus' preaching is, is, is confronting, like, so you're saying, in a paraphrase, obviously, you're saying it's against the law for me to heal a paralytic on the Sabbath. Like, like them having to reckon with all the rules they put to you, you can walk this far, you can do this much, you can have no recreation, you can have no anything. 
Like this is keeping the Sabbath. And Jesus is like saying, no, no, this is keeping the Sabbath. This is showing God's power and his love for his people. So I would say that don't look to society to ever give an example of, of holiness uh, on the Lord's day. But, but to the best of our ability, we should still recognize while our Sabbath rest is complete in Christ, setting aside a day for family and instruction of children and special time of, of, of family worship and things like that, or even um, being with other Christians on the Lord's day and spending time with them is a good recognition that this day is separate for a reason, um, whereas other things might not be. And yes, it's, it's but so agreed for most of what everyone said, but I wanted, just wanted to point out the Sabbath rest is there and marriage is there. And this is pre-fall, and I would say the ideal, I don't say, this is uh, something Bruce Waldke wrote, that described the ideal for his creation. And so we look at, if you want to, because I'm going to read it, in Genesis 1, uh, 26, I'm reading this because we read it last week, and then I'll be going to 2. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth and every creeping thing on the earth. Take note of that, 26. We talked about dominion all over the created order. And then 27, it goes into the Hebraic kind of more of a a poem uh, with with, uh, four words per line. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the heavens, every living thing that moves on the earth. We talked about this last week, having dominion, subduing it. Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. I've mentioned this before. This does not mean humanity and its greatest way was supposed to be vegan for anyone that's offended by that Uh, the reality was that that is not extrapolated on in terms of reasons for that other than after the curse and particularly after the flood you have the covenant with Noah and then after that this this pronouncement from God that living things will now be in 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 have fear of man because man is given that for food so so the idea of probably has more to do with curse and sin and death and then it has to do with um amount of vitamins you get in vegetables now it says (coughs) starting in two thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them and on the seventh day god finished his work and he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work he had done so god blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it god rested from all his work that he had done in creation Now, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And so, moving down now, where he's describing what he's made, maybe one of the things to take note of here is as two is much more opening up, particularly the the creation of male and female, man and woman, uh, you have a couple of things. Um, 
Verse 5, when no bush of the field was yet on the land, no small plant in the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. We have this emphasis that we've already talked about last week. Work the ground. Uh, cultivate. Like this is a, is a mandate from God that you're going to see that, that is put on, on mankind. So he had been known to work the ground. So a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. As a side note, if you've ever had the misfortune of reading the book Wild at Heart, uh, there's a section in it where the author talks about man being created in the wild and then be put in the garden. And so man's always trying to seek the wilderness and that's why he's got to fight stuff and do it. That is the dumbest book. And I'm sorry if you've read it. And that's a tangent. If you know me well, you know I can't stand that book. And any chance I get, even when inappropriate, I make sure people know never to read it. Okay. Put him in the garden in the east who he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So here you have the stages set. Here is paradise. Here is this, this now regent who is going to give a mandate to cultivate, protect this garden and to also subdue and have authority over all living things. And immediately you'll see that he's put there. And, and if, you'll, if you'll look that, everything God has done up until this point, what does he judge after he's done it? What does he say? It's good or very good. Yeah, there's this pronouncement after each step. <laughs> and then, of course, we have the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is, of course, setting up. So, so I have to ask, and, and Fred's probably like shaking your head, you don't get another week, which I don't. But when you think of the fall, as I said, we'd be talking about it. Primarily, what are you thinking about in terms of vegetation in the garden? Tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What happens? Eat it. He's commanded. Yeah. Everything else is yours. This one tree. Do not eat of it unless you will die. So we know that that's the command. And then the tree of life is mentioned here. And the tree of life is mentioned after the curse. Was he eating the tree of life the whole time? Or is that where humanity's immortality came from? And was it guarded at the end because he hadn't eaten it yet? This is raw speculation, by the way. But isn't it one of those questions that, am I the only one? No. Okay. Like, and so we never talk about it. We talk about, is it an apple? Was it a kiwi fruit? Because 
we found out that kiwi is really the perfect fruit in terms of what's in it. And I'm like, it's, it's, a, it's a fuzzball that you have to peel. And you can never get the ripeness right. It's a really frustrating fruit. It can't be the one. But what about the tree of life? It wasn't forbidden humanity to eat of it. The imagery is used... Is the imagery of the tree of life used after? Twice. Where? Yeah. And then in Revelation, what is it? Yeah. And so this is something that it's one of those interesting imageries. It's not a, it's not a hapax legomena that happens once. It's like something that happens three times, and you're like, what is it? And I'm sharing with you my mind right now. Like, there is no clear answer. Theologians, by the way, have written, especially post-Reformation era, the idea of eating of the tree of life was something that was perpetuating the immortality, and it was, and it was the, 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 the receiving of the grace of God through the tree of life, and that's why the imagery that's used in the New Testament and, and all that. But like, at the end of the day, you have to say, there's no explanation given. There's no, no discussion of anyone eating it. And so I promise I didn't just waste five minutes, but I had to bring it up. Now, uh, going down from the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in, in 9, there's a bit of geography that's getting to the area and the rivers that come out. <clears throat> and then in 16, uh, 15, the Lord took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And there it is again, to work it and to keep it, um, to cultivate it and protect it is, is words we were using last year when we were doing a, a study on, on a book called The Masculine Mandate. I said, the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And then this is the aspect I was leading to, was it says, The Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heaven, brought them to the man to see that he would call them. And so... So he takes all of this creative order that man has been given authority to subdue and rule over, brings them before this man, Adam, and whatever the man called every living creature, this was its name. This is a, this is a ancient Near Eastern kind of tradition of assuming authority over something. So the writing of this is so that you understand He's fulfilling already one of the commands that God has given to subdue all living things by God bringing living things before Adam and Adam naming them. And, and that, that's, you can, again, it's one of these, it's the section of scripture where people like in books, when they talk about it, you can imagine when he's wrestling the first lion and he's doing all these things and he's like, you're a lion. I'm like, what? And so... But the reality is the purpose of this narrative is to show that Adam, as vice regent, is ruling and subduing by the act of naming all these living creatures. In the preface, or the parenthetical thought is, God says, he needs a helper. So then he brings the rest of the creatures that were created from the dust of the ground, just like Adam, 
And so he brings the rest of the creatures before the man. So he names, and the man names all the livestock, the birds of the heavens, beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So out of the dust of the ground, all these creatures are made like Adam. So these other creatures are brought before him, but they're not fit for him to be a helper, to be his helper. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up his place of his flesh, which is, we say ribs, it just means, it just means side. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, and she was taken out of man. Now, again, many a strange sermon have been preached because this once again switches to poetry in Hebrew. And, and it's, what's the old one? Like, you know, he, whoa, man. Like, because he saw, again, like, can't we not do better than that? Like, the, the, the magnitude of the event, like, like in, in terms of what's happening, cannot, cannot escape you. Okay? Like, you, you, we all are in existence now in the time period with which we existed we were born into it. We all had mothers and fathers, right? And then everyone kind of just goes through the process of this, even unbelievers. I mean, I mean, everyone. You grow up. You notice, hey, it's a little bit different than me. Something, they're kind of, not as dirty. What's the right word I'm thinking of? Pretty. Uh, I have a funny feeling in my stomach. I think I'm going to throw mud at it. Like that's, that's how it starts, right? That was the thing when you're in kindergarten, the girl you like, like you put a tarantula on her head. There's no explaining it. It's, it's, it's there in the creative order. And so when man and woman look to one another, there's this distinct aspect of understanding. Creation itself, the way God designed man and woman, was to be together. And it's not in the base things. It's not just in uh, sexual satisfaction. It's not just in just rote companionship. It's none of those things. And, while, and it's not just childbearing. While all of those things are necessary and important, the reality is, to fulfill your role as vice regents after the fall in Christ, fighting against sin nature at all times, while trying to fulfill this mandate of being fruitful and multiplying and subduing now a rebellious creation, you're still drawn to one another because that's the way God created it. Man and woman are supposed to be together. So all of this discussion in our culture today with the nonsense of what is a woman and what are, or, 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 and all these things, you get caught up in that rather than coming back to the foundation of there's, there's male and female. 
And when they fail to recognize their need for one another, in, in, in the, the, this, this glory that they were first given prior to the fall, and that that is what one day you will receive again. <clears throat> and as we'll see, in holy matrimony, in the covenant of marriage, God designed man and woman to glorify his name. At the heart of Christian marriage, at the heart of all your marriages and mine, in all the difficulties of two no longer sinless individuals, but two broken sinners drawn together. And how often do you sit across, husbands, from your wives, whatever the conflict might be, and go, remember why we're together. Remember our covenant promise and our covenant goal of glorifying God. That is our highest calling. And starting from there, maybe you need a refresh to start there, but like this aspect of, to me, the theological reality of the import of marriage, of the covenant of marriage, and how it was designed to subdue and rule and represent God in a, in a glorified world, like, like that should at least for me, makes me go, this is the real purpose of my marriage. It's not to fulfill my desires. It's not to make sure her, her what do they call it? honeydew list is done. It's not to get my way. It's to glorify God. And so, the poem... Of this at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, because she was taken on man. Isn't Adam seeing the perfect, created, sinless woman with no clothes on and going, whoa, man, he's recognizing the fact that he feels complete. Now he knows this mandate to be fruitful and multiply and subdue and protect. He can't do on his own. He has an inability to do on his own. And he's recognizing this is what was missing. And so then we have the following. Verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So, what are the commands that were given to Adam? What's he supposed to do? Work, keep, cultivate, protect if you want to. Be fruitful, multiply. Don't eat the fruit. Needed a helper. 
helper is given in the form of, of woman. And again, see the generic usage of male, female, man, woman, husband, wife. All of these things are used interchangeably here in the first three chapters of Genesis. And they're all emphasizing different roles and aspects that Adam and, and Eve are, are playing within this, this drama. So what does it mean for, for woman to be a helper? Ha-ha. And because I said I wasn't going to talk about women's roles in society and the church, and I'm not, because I'm asking, what does this mean in the text as helper? Okay, that's absolutely true. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah, Sharon. Okay. Anyone else? Bruce, good. I just know I'm getting more trouble when I introduce more kids and more people as my helper. I knew it wasn't going to be helpful. I don't know why. I don't know why I called on him. Although challenge accepted, because that's how I'm introducing Christina all the time now. What does it mean to be a helper? What does this text mean when it's talking about being a helper? And then I was hoping there might be some brave soul that would be like... Yeah, so in the text where we are so far, no. In where we are in the text right now, it's interesting because of things like childbirth isn't mentioned until when? After the fall. Um, So the the reality is is that everything Adam is commanded, and, and the implication is that it's not good for him to be alone to do these things. And so Eve is created 
or woman is created from him. And then the, the, the poetry of, of bone of my flesh of my flesh is an indication like that's the perfect creation to help him do all those things. So I'd say the most natural reading of Genesis 1 and 2 is that Eve is helping Adam as a co-regent with those things, subduing, multiplying. There's an aspect of, I think this is probably where maybe some people are getting uncomfortable, but there's an aspect of authority of Adam over Eve, but it only comes when he names her, which is in chapter 4. And so there's an aspect of, what's the right word? There's no ontological difference between man and woman. They're perfect. What does ontological difference mean, Fred? No, I meant I meant ontology. I meant, I meant the ontology. Of, yeah, there's no difference in them. There's no so there's nothing different in man and woman that makes one in the creative order higher or lower than the other. So so I'll, I'll use I'll I'll use a conversation piece that I said I wasn't going to address, but it's become more prevalent in the last forty years as a reaction against what was seen as a rise of feminism in the church. And so what they would say is that because Eve is, is the one who is tempted, there is some type of minus in the spiritual way that women bear over men. And that same group of people would also like to make the Trinity like have some type of eternal subordination of the Son, meaning that, that the Son, Jesus, is eternally... Um, subservient to the Father, and they would say that in order to show that that's why women should be eternally subservient to their husbands. Um, aren't you glad you never hear anything like that from here? But, but so that's so. There's no difference. There's no. There's no. That's what I mean. By, there's no difference in their being and their ontology. They're completely equal before God's eyes and worth and value. And the the most clear way to read chapter one and two. And the mandate is that woman, Eve, is alongside man, Adam, working the garden with him, subduing the earth with him, being fruitful and multiplying with him. That, that was the whole point. Later, after the fall, you'll see he names her Eve. And so in the same manner, it is, it is taken of there's some type of authority that he has over her. But where we are right now, you could take it, if you were trying to make like a philosophical observation because she was created from him, she, he naturally has that. But it's not something that's addressed in the first couple of chapters. And so that, that's my point, is that as we've talked about Christ and the redeemed state and the culmination of all things in heaven... Will you be cooking your husband his favorite dinner? No, some of them are like, no, Jesus, thank Jesus. Like, no. It, it, it's, it's so the, the idea of, of the creative order here, and, and I would say that prior to what a lot of things had happened, when, when you're talking about 
say the things I wouldn't say I would talk about. When you're talking about women's roles in the church and things like that, and say you uphold the view, which is a historical view, which is the most kind of exegetically faithful view, is that the only thing forbidden from women in the church in Scripture is being an office bearer in the role of elder overseer. Nothing else is forbidden women in the New Testament. And so that has nothing to do, by the way, with the value, the ontological equality that men and women have in the creative order and after the fall. And so Adam is given an equal. Does does that make sense? And this is not egalitarian. Does anyone know what that word means? Is anyone confused by what I'm talking about right now? Okay. And so, given this bride, given this command, and again, under the kind of the, the, the umbrella of the cosmos, all of the created order is a gift. Like when, when God is over the chaotic waters and he creates... It's synonymous with an act of grace, an act of salvation, a gift. He's gifting the cosmos, the created order. And now he's put man and woman at what would be seen kind of in a, like in a, in a literary sense, the, the center of the perfection of that cosmos. And now the center, Eden, of the perfection where now there is the garden and then there is the trees of good and evil and and life, and now you have the man and the woman, and they've been given a task to work and keep it. And all of this is in order to show God's glory and celebrate God's glory with all of creation. And so that's where we are. By the end of chapter 2, the marriage pronouncement is made in the effect of Therefore, in 2.24, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. <clears throat> what does that mean? 24. Let's start with the first part. He shall leave his father and his mother. Now remember, what time is this is Genesis written? Because probably people are like, Adam didn't have a mom and dad. Uh, when was this written? Or to who was this written? Maybe that's easier. Israelites in the wilderness. Right. Written to Israelites in the wilderness. The story would have been told to them orally for generations, written down. And so what does it mean a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast or cleave to his wife? What, what part of that is, is go ahead, Anna. I think it's, it means that there's a shift in responsibility, um, a shift in like family unit. There's this establishing of a, of a new and independent family unit. Good. And, and what, did, what would that be fulfilling, what's already been put on man? The multiplication. Right. Good. Yeah, so that's, that's exact. So, so the Israelites in the wilderness are receiving this. And, and they're, they're hearing it, and they're being told it. This is what happens in a, in, a, in a family unit. A man 
will leave his family, leave the authority of his father and mother with his wife, and then they will, and this is all in lockstep with the mandate of be fruitful and multiply. And so how God's people, Israel, receiving this, are to glorify God is God's people are to be fruitful and multiply. And then, of course, that'll go forward to the giving of the law. And once that multiplication or being fruitful happens and they have children, what are they supposed to do with those children? What are they supposed to teach them? The law of God. They're supposed to catechize their children. It's not a, it's not a bad word. It's a good word. And so catechize or teach your children the essentials of God's word, in essence. And so in doing so, then they will grow up under this covenant of faithful believer. And then what will they do? Leave their father and mother going forward, wave in the church. And so Paul has a whole dialogue in Corinthians about not being unequally yoked, right? Like the idea of a faithful person marrying a faithful person, a believer marrying a believer. Why? Because they already understand that when we, and maybe, and I would say that the, the author of, of The Masculine Mandate, Richard Phillips, for the guys that read it last year, there's this, there's this great section where he talks about, I'm, I'm doing this in like a, like a, everyone gets that kind of idea in Christianity. And, and his thing is, like, as a pastor and a counselor uh, for, for decades, he's like, the, the one thing that you should ask, say, a Christian man who, who's, who's getting married, or you should make them ask you, is, what do I need to know about marriage? And the answer is, way more than you do. Because the reality is, like, I'm laying that out, but, like, how often has that how often is that idea followed? Do you, do you, so, so all the way back to what I was saying about this, this, this design of God bringing man and woman together to subdue and be fruitful and multiply and spread the glory of God through that. And then the fall happens, but the mandate remains. And it continues all the way even after the flood. Be fruitful and multiply. There is still this line of righteousness in, in, in terms of when God's communicating to Noah. And it needs to continue, and that line needs to continue to be fruitful and multiply. And so often when we think of marriage, we think of, man, I really like that person's face. Or, you know, like, like the, and, and I really enjoy their company. And... And then there's never like this real kind of, hey, we're we're believers, and and there's this there's this this mandate, this aspect of reflecting God's glory in our marriage, that that goes all the way back to pre-fall, and is used as imagery for Christ's return when He brings the church to glory, like marriage is super important. In the, way that, in the way that the man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and kind of be fruitful and multiply, 
that's, that's this essence of, of the spreading of God's glory because the idea is God's people are doing this. We are now in Western civilization at the lowest point, and I believe since the founding of the country in terms of like, pop, which isn't really that fair probably, but like percentage of the population that, that believes in anything that I mean, the, the, the faith, uh, Barna did a, a study, and it was like, and it's generally a, a Christian study, but they did one that was just faith in anything, and it's at an, an astronomical low, and it just keeps plummeting. And, and in churches today, you want to know what a, one of the biggest problems is? Unmarried men, like. Men going into well into their 30s and not pursuing and just kind of like retreating from the whole idea of marriage. And, and one of the authors, Bruce, Bruce Walke, makes an a, a observation of you have and why that ends up being such a, a bad thing is that women, don't get mad at me, This I'm quoting Bruce Walke, women in their 20s, biologically, our, our, their bodies are saying, babies. And, and, but when men get to a place where they're like, I'm not interested, or whatever the societal things that's shifting that way, suddenly they're in their 30s, and now these women that are unmarried are in their mid-30s or more. And like, so you have where you're missing an entire generation of professing Christians marrying one another. That's a problem. Now, in one minute, why is that? Just kidding, I'll go two minutes. Or is it not a problem, or am I just... Why is it a problem that young Christians aren't marrying each other? Yes. Less babies, okay. They're not fulfilling the mandate. Yes. It opens one up to temptation for lost victims. Absolutely. Or becoming outnumbered by non-believers. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I would say the first answer was better. <laughs> Marriage is one of the primary means of sanctification. God still sends his son. Yes. I would go even further to say marriage precedes human civilization. Does it not? And especially in this account here, it not just precedes human civilization, human civilization is based on it. And so removing it or, or, or ignoring it is, is what happens when societies crumble. And so if you have large unmarried population and you have that now creep into the church, then that's bad. Because God says it's good. The opposite of what God says is good. The opposite of that is bad, right? Are there, how do we fix it? Do we just grab people and go, okay, you're of a certain age, you're of a certain age. Uh, obey your governing authorities, which is the elders of the church, 
uh, we're marrying you right now. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Some people are like, oh, that's not, not a bad idea. Uh, there, there was, before I met Christina, I went to a tiny church. And there, I was the only guy that was like in his mid-20s. Everyone else was significantly older. And then there was one girl that was like roughly my age. And we had no interest in each other at all. And, but one Sunday morning, it was pretty full, so I sat next to her and thought nothing of it. And like the church was like, oh, it's happening. And like my aunt went to the church and she was like, I saw you sat next. I was like, it was an open chair. <laughs> yeah, but what do you think about her? I don't think anything about her. Like, it's a chair. And, but at least their heart was in the right place. I want to see more of that attitude from Trinity Bible Church. When we had, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> uh, the reality is, is that I didn't have enough time to talk about the gift of singleness, as Paul describes it. You, you, you ignore um, a pretty significant aspect of not just Paul and seemingly Barnabas's own life, that they were unmarried. Um, but Paul also kind of identifies that as a unique gift, not, not a normative gift. And so I, I believe that when you're talking about marriage and you're talking about the covenant of marriage, and yes, I want you to call it the covenant of marriage. When you're talking about that and you're thinking about your spouse and when you're interacting with one another, and when you're talking with each other, when you're fighting with each other, these are things we're supposed to be remembering. The fighting, the arguing, the clashing is all result of the sin. The same Adam who made a poem when Eve was created blamed everything on her right after the fall. It, the clarity of sin... You don't have to look further than the mirror to see how sinful things are in your marriage. And yet, earnestly remind one another of the glory that your marriage represents. And husbands, you should be taking the lead on that conversation. Let's not talk about your authority as husband over wife, if you're unwilling to cultivate your own wife's heart. And I end on that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you and ask that you bless the marriages of this church. God, I pray that you would have us all put aside our our sinful desire to have our way, our tendencies to, to, to treat each other and speak to each other in ways that simply are unworthy of the house of faith. God, let us cleave to our husbands. Let us cleave to our wives. Let us seek to 
raise our children in a godly manner, making our home a place of worship. God, that we know that that Christ is our Sabbath rest. We know that the church is the bride and Christ is purifying the bride and we will be received by the Lord in holiness. But until such a time, our very marriages are intended to be reflections of His glory. And God, may You now bless us as this time of fellowship. May You continue to bless this time of coming public worship. And through the union we share with Christ, through the power of God the Holy Spirit, May all glory go to your name. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.